Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. It's one thing to drop the scarcity mentality. It's another thing to convince your CEO and your board that the strategy for the organization needs dramatically change because you need to be able to weather the next recession. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is part of an incredible mini-series on how to mobilize your mission, brought to you by our friends at Nation Builder. Today, I'm interviewing Woodrow Rosenbaum. Woodrow is the chief data officer at Giving Tuesday, and he brings a powerful lens on fundraising based on his previous career in commercial marketing, as well as the detailed metrics he's constantly scanning for clues to donor behavior. From his viewpoint at Giving Tuesday, the donor movement unleashing radical generosity around the world, Woodrow has a unique and broad-based understanding of the dynamics at play in today's fluid giving environment. We're all being called upon to break old models, be brave, and shift from a scarcity mindset into one of abundance. Among the many things Woodrow shares on this episode, he talks about abandoning zero-sum competitiveness in favor of helping all boats rise together. We talk about what makes for the most resilient non profits, especially during recessions. Why fundraising that exclusively emphasizes the transactional leaves money as well as goodwill and long-term engagement on the table. We also talk about why donor fatigue actually isn't a thing and why recurring donations are so important and why they're sticky in the first place. Woodrow unpacks what it means to approach nonprofit work holistically, aligning fundraising with story-led marketing activities that expand nonprofit missions, build community, drive social movements and inspire donors to get on board with giving again and again. There is so much inside this episode, so let's dive in so you can meet Woodrow. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Woodrow Rosenbaum from Giving Tuesday. Woodrow, welcome to What the Fundraising. Hi, Mallory. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't we start with you telling everyone a little bit about yourself and your journey into the work that you're doing today? Sure. So I am Chief Data Officer at Giving Tuesday, not a role I ever would have expected myself to be in. I come from a commercial marketing background and really ended up doing this work by accident. And just like Giving Tuesday has really grown beyond anybody's expectations and become many things that it was never envisioned to be, this role and the work that we've been doing around data and insights in the sector has really evolved unexpectedly. Interesting. Can you, for folks who are coming to the show who are wondering what commercial marketing really is, can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah, many of my clients in my previous work were large beverage alcohol clients. So we would build strategies and execute campaigns to sell more whiskey, get more market share for whiskey brands, worked with really the industry leaders in whiskey and vodka and 
some beer brands, but then also a bunch of other stuff. So we worked in technology and fashion, and but really consumer brands, helping them achieve their market ambitions. Okay, so I know we're going to talk really specifically about fundraising, but I'm just curious, something I've been thinking a lot about recently is the difference and similarities between fundraising and sales and fundraising and marketing. So could you speak to just for a minute, how do you think about the relationship between the marketing and the sales of the company? Sure, all the time. And that marketing and sales were enemies all the time. Think about the issues that we would see often had to do with disconnected incentives between brand marketing and sales teams. And uncovering those and getting better alignment is really key to success for a lot of big brands. And it's not easy to do. We would roll out a program to introduce a new brand, if the sales team is making their year on the flagship brand, it's not always in their interest to introduce a new brand. It's not always in their interest to develop new accounts. It's definitely not in their interest to share their territory. So those misaligned incentives often got in the way of really good strategy getting executed. And what are some of the similarities or the differences between marketing and fundraising in the nonprofit landscape? Yeah, that's been an interesting journey. When I started doing this, I really wanted to avoid coming in and being this kind of, we know how to business and you nonprofit people. And I did a lot of listening initially. And some of the things I was hearing in the sector really surprised me. And I thought none of this aligns with my expectation of how consumers respond to messaging or how markets work. And so I was really interested to discover whether this was because fundraising was a really very unique situation or whether some of the received wisdom in the nonprofit sector, and particularly with respect to fundraising, whether there may be some of that are mm. myths. And yeah, it's turned out, I think that it's fair to say that there are a number of pervasive myths in the nonprofit sector about how people respond. In fact, effective fundraising and effective marketing share a lot of commonality. What are some of those myths? When we started doing this work, one of the classic things was just this expectation of a zero-sum game. Mm. And this work, understanding generosity, started fairly modestly. Giving Tuesday is this distributed event, and it's co-created by people all over the world. And that has led to enormous growth for the movement and for the day itself. But it also makes it difficult to measure because you're deliberately not driving people through a single funnel. And because the activity is happening all over the place, it's not easy to capture everything that's going on. We certainly didn't want to do anything that would restrict its growth just to make it more mm -hmm. measurable. And so we asked online donation processors to just share their daily volume on the day of Giving Tuesday. So we had some metric, some benchmark that we could compare year, year over year. And it turned out that what we ended up with was an asset, a data asset that hadn't been collected before of individual online donation transactions. And initially the thought was, well, good, maybe we can learn a little bit more about what's happening on Giving Tuesday, and in particular with emergent, at the time, emergent online giving behaviors. And so we partnered with Datakind and the Gates Foundation. This was really the genesis of mm. the work that we're doing, just to look at that single day. What can we learn from that? And so we started some consultations to ask the sector, what is it that you would like to learn? 
And I was really surprised that many people in the nonprofit sector, I would even maybe say most, were convinced that it was impossible, literally impossible to get people to give more. That the 2% of GDP is like the speed of light, but you can't exceed it. And that therefore, if you get someone to give today, by definition, they have to give less tomorrow. And I was really surprised to hear that was widely believed, that this sort of flat giving is just a reality, a natural law. It wasn't my experience with commercial marketing at all. And so I started talking to those vendors, the companies that process donations, and they said, no, no, that's not what we see at all. And so that very beginning that we went into that first analysis trying to answer that question, and it turned out, yeah, that's a myth. The generosity of Americans is far more elastic than anybody had ever given it credit for. Okay, I love this because this really is this question that I've been thinking about a lot recently as well, which is what's the chicken and what's the egg? We see a lot of here's what donors do. And I understand why data is being shared that way because that's the data that we have. But what I've been asking a lot is what did the organization do before that behavior? Because I think looking at donor behavior disconnected from what we're doing, and this goes into that bigger question around like how we create our own markets, is how helpful is that to us? So I'm curious how much of what organizations ultimately see, those limiting beliefs that they hold, become then the self-fulfilling prophecies of their organizations. For better or for worse. Yeah. And this is when we look at donations to nonprofits as one aspect of giving. And it is one very limited aspect of a measure of people's generosity. Most donations are solicited. And so when we look at the donation record, we tend to think about it and talk about it as if it's an expression of donor intent and behavior when mm. it is at least as much a reflection of fundraiser behavior. And so we have to recognize that at a minimum, it's about that what we're measuring is that ecosystem. And yet we do tend to think about it in terms of this is what the donors care about and what matters. And without any look at the frequency and type of those solicitations. So a great example is how many fundraisers have I heard say that they ask in December because that's when people give? No, <laughs> people are giving in December because that's when you're asking. And that's a fairly benign example. The problem with that is that it is locking us out of opportunity because people are very giving all year round and are prepared to support causes that they care about all year round. This is increasingly true as younger donors have, younger adult donors have very high trust and value in charities and charitable giving, but they're less proactive. So our engagement becomes even more important than it was before. And it was always of paramount importance. This is, yeah, it's a problem that it's limiting, but more importantly, it's locking us out of the opportunity to de-seasonalize giving. One of the biggest opportunities in front of the nonprofit sector is that de-seasonalization, and that depends 100% on the practice of fundraising. Wow. Okay. I brought this up on another podcast recently, but I'm really curious what you would say about this. I have this sense that some of what holds nonprofit leaders back from changing the way that they fundraise is out of fear that 
And this is subconscious that they would be to blame if something did happen. If that person gave in March, but then not at the end of the year, and it ended up being a smaller amount. I watch nonprofit leaders a lot pull on these outlier situations to be, see, that was the wrong thing. And and they hold the bigger sense of responsibility. And so they stick with these, I can't even use the word tried and true because they're totally mediocre or sometimes horrible processes. Like I've heard someone say they had an 11% open rate on something, but they didn't want to change it because what if they only got 10% if they did it differently? And you think about the difference for the upside there versus what they're afraid of. I'm curious, how do you think about the internal barriers or organizational cultural barriers that need to change to start to do something shifting when fundraising is happening and how fundraising is happening. Yeah. So some of this is not on the shoulders of fundraisers. We Mm -hmm. have systems that disincentivize positive change. So for example, very common that the most successful fundraisers, most experienced fundraisers in your organization get promoted to major gifts officer. Okay. I get that. That's where the short-term dollars, that's where they come in. Broad engagement, acquisition, recurring gifts, social media engagement is either out of the fundraising team, it's not even a development action, or it's more junior people who are just keeping the feed going. This is optimizing our system for the result we're getting. More dollars from fewer donors. So, okay, if we don't like that result, then we need to change that system. And part of that is think about the other aspects of your fundraising machine as being equally important. And they are equally important. When we look at economic shocks, organizations with a broad base of donors, including small donors, are much more resilient to recession. So this is critically important right now. We've got to get a broader engagement or we're going to be less resilient. But this is not, I get it, it's not easy, right? Like organizations, particularly now under a lot of stress coming through this pandemic and the really winners and losers situation in 2020 and the high demand on services is driving this need for immediate return on investment. Mm. And where are you going to get that? By calling up your major donor and getting them to pony up a big gift. We have this system and it is not within our control. Mm. But the donors are not to blame for lower participation in 2021, right? It's our practice is organized around that result. I'm curious if you heard this, but I've been hearing a lot lately around how little some organizations fundraised in 2021 because they had the PPP loan. They had seen their fundraising go way up. And so they took that. We have more cash in the bank to mean that we don't need to fundraise. I just talked to someone yesterday who has not sent out a fundraising letter in a year because they, so talk to me about what in this space. So there are indicators that fundraising activity has dropped. So we're seeing indicators like MailChimp report, dramatic drop in the number of solicitation emails. So that analysis that they did with us, I think, is not definitive, but quite telling. A fundraising Mm. effectiveness project, which we manage in partnership with the AFP Foundation, is showing a much higher percentage of organizations that were fundraising ceasing fundraising. So yeah, that's a concern. First of all, because it might be an indication of poor 
sector health. But I just recently was talking to a researcher at ISCR conference who said that what they're seeing is that the indicators of organization failure in the US, Canada, and the UK are actually way down and that organizations seem to be particularly resilient. And one hypothesis is that various forms of large donor and government support has bolstered these organizations. Mm -hmm. Researchers have seen that organizations that get government funding, that the more government funding they get, the less fundraising they do. Yeah, that might be part of what we're seeing. The problem is that doesn't set us up for long-term resilience and there's a storm coming. Yeah, that and my deep belief is that the act of fundraising itself is also really important. That the act of inviting people to invest in something they believe in and all of the communications and marketing, all of the strategy that goes into the touch points of good fundraising, not the sort of like urgent one shot fundraising, but those things that they are actually a really critical part of movement building, of eradicating issues in society, not just because of the money the organization gets, but because of the believers they indoctrinate and the identity that donors adopt as a part of giving. I'm curious what you think about that and the different elements of generosity, giving, and community building around fundraising. Yeah, the combination of the kind of storytelling about an organization and the fundraising and support gathering really should be thought of as an ecosystem. That moves you out of a transactional engagement. It means that those two functions become mutually supportive. You become more interesting to your donors. That is the cure for the myth of donor fatigue. The sector believes in this still to this day fairly strongly and it is completely manufactured the data do not support that donor fatigue is a thing i have sometimes said donors are not tired of giving but they might be tired of your crappy message and in commercial marketing i never once had a client suggest that we might reduce the number of touch points or reduce our frequency of engagement we understand in commercial marketing that we purchase frequency with quality and what you're talking about is how you get there. The vast majority of donors are taking more actions than just giving their money. Only giving your money is a very rare behavior in the U.S. and around the world. On Giving Tuesday, we see giving money is the most common behavior, but only giving money is the least common behavior. And this is true on an annualized basis, too. Most people are giving more than one thing and giving in more than one way and giving to more than one type of organization. And yet our fundraising tends to be highly transactional, but that's not meeting donors where they are. All of this also conspires to be highly inequitable. We are robbing people of agency by not engaging them in our missions. They have less voice in the social sector and they're less involved in your mission and therefore less connected. It's also a big opportunity because if you're concerned about how often you're engaging, and again, not to be too mean about it. But if you think your message is going to be an unwelcome intrusion, you're probably right. But the answer isn't talk less. The answer is get good. And talking about all the ways people can support your organization, talking about your mission, all those marketing and storytelling components, you should consider this as part of the fundraising element. If anything, really, I would think fundraising is one element of your marketing and not the other way around. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's how I have been sitting with the Venn diagram. And that's why I started this conversation asking about sales and marketing is because I've just really been sitting with what I believe fundraising is over the last few months. When I think about what is included in fundraising, I think my opinion, especially over the last few years, as I started to understand good fundraising in a different way, I didn't separate out marketing because actually all of those things to me are fundraising. Or we are doing the thing that everyone says they don't want to do, which is being transactional fundraisers. And I was saying this to you before we clicked record. This has been this thing that has been driving me crazy is like the relentless conversation around don't make fundraising transactional. And the same folks who are doing that are separating their marketing department from their fundraising department and all the non-transactional elements then are no longer in fundraising. And I just... They're gutting it of all the relationship building, of all the additional communication, but then telling these fundraisers to not be transactional. And it just feels really confusing and stifling dynamic. At least aligning incentives. But yes, thinking about this as your holistic approach, one way to look at this, it's been said that marketing is just everything that's not production. And another way to look at this is what is marketing? It's using messaging to engage someone for a behavior you want. And so if you think about it in those terms, one of those things we want is for people to give money to our organization, especially knowing that they also want other things. And that one of the ways you deliver on that relationship is by telling them a story of of their good. All of that just means this is just marketing. That's what it is. Why do you think fundraisers or nonprofit leaders have this sort of internal dialogue that they're always bothering people or that there there's a lot of victimhood and martyrdom in this sector and i say this 100% saying that i was that fundraiser for many years i grew up in the sector that was all the messaging i had been surrounded by i 100% approached things from a lot of scarcity and fear and discomfort and held those beliefs that, oh, I don't want to ask them to volunteer because they just gave. And by this is asking for too much instead of saying, this is something that people want. What do you think leads to some of that dynamic in our sector? Part of the problem is that chicken and egg situation you described. They're not wrong to some degree. Right. The Sector 3 Insights did some really interesting research looking at the quality of nonprofit messaging. And mm. most nonprofit messaging is not leveraging the most important drivers of donation. So, yeah, demonstrably not doing a good job. I think that, again, part of it is about alignment of incentives. And on the one hand, you've got a big opportunity, right? By losing that scarcity mentality, it frees you of all of that self-limiting, self-fulfilling prophecy. On the other hand, it means now you have to accept responsibility for the success. And that's a daunting thing, particularly when you're being judged on what comes in the door this month. 
And that does mean that it's one thing to drop the scarcity mentality. It's another thing to convince your CEO and your board that the strategy for the organization needs dramatically change because you need to be able to weather the next recession. Now, the good news is I don't think it's an either or thing. We can do large donor stewardship and broad engagement. We can do both. And more importantly, in some ways, it's just easier. We need good storytelling. And when that supports the fundraising, that actually makes the job easier. We need to worry less about trust. There's far too much. I think there's a lot, and it goes back to not looking at the fundraising results as this confluence of donor desire and fundraiser mm-hmm. behavior. So if we only look at it with as the donor as donor driven, which it's mostly not, then that leads us to ask the wrong questions. So a classic is how many different ways have we seen donors ask how important it is that they can trust the organization to spend their money effectively? So donors always say it's 100% important. Is it important we don't steal your money? Yes, it's maximally important. Mm. And so then we think we're going to message about that, but that doesn't matter. By and large, people are trusting of nonprofits. And what drives the donation is not trust. Trust is your table stakes. It's needed in order to get a donation, but it doesn't motivate a donation. And yet we have this pivot away from emotional storytelling because of this idea that's the most important thing. So then that's what we have to talk about. And if we ask people how important it was that we not kick puppies, they would say it was maximally important. But we're not going to message about that. And it actually reminds me of a story of, of a diaper brand that had exactly this situation. They asked consumers what the most important factor in choosing a diaper was. And consumers said unequivocally, it's absorbency. So that's what the diaper brand started messaging about. And they lost share. And the reason they lost share is that by and large, people trust the top diaper brands to be absorbent. So when you're messaging about that, it wasn't differentiating. It wasn't important. Easy closed tabs and elastic leg bands and Disney characters, those things differentiate your product. Absorbency doesn't because people trust your brand to be absorbent. And we have a similar situation in the nonprofit sector where we're getting more and more intellectual in our engagement, more and more transactional, and then asking questions that reinforce the idea that that's the right thing to do. Wow, that is really interesting. I want to go back to what you were saying before around the relationship between trying to inspire fundraisers to behave differently, the relationship between what's being tracked inside organizations. And it makes me think about, I had a scientist on here, Ayala Fishbach, who studies the science of motivation. She talked about the middle problem, which is a common concept we understand around motivation, that motivation dips in the middle, that there's high motivation at the beginning of something and at the end of something. And when she was talking about this on the podcast, what it really made me think of is the arc of donor stewardship and retention. That acquisition is the beginning. We're highly motivated around acquisition. We're highly motivated around that sort of like major gift close, right? And retention and stewardship, especially of smaller dollar donors or more of that middle space is just a giant middle problem. And part of what I've been thinking about is that we have this moves management system that is really limited in terms of how we can track whether we're on track. And so I think about what are ways that you might suggest organizations start to track the behaviors of the fundraisers in the middle to demonstrate that they're on track for that longer term stewardship? 
Yeah, so I think that there's a few things. First of all, as soon as you recognize that the engagement should be less transactional and more about developing relationship, then that opens up some obvious points that KPI to think about. How engaged are people? Are they doing things other than donate? How often do they read your thing? Do they respond? Do they share? Like, how are they? What are those relationship metrics? Those are critically important and ultimately going to be the key to retention. I think then tactically, I think that there's... A, most organizations could probably benefit from a much stronger focus on recurring giving, mm. particularly for donors under 40, or at least recurring giving tends to skew towards donors under 40. And I think that's a big advantage because you've got a marketplace that is inclined to charitable giving, feels financially stressed, custom to subscription models. Recurring first is probably a valuable strategy for a lot of organizations. Now, what do you do with those folks once they're, mm. you've got them in a recurring gift? I think the sector really needs to dial in a lot better. I hear too often from our platform partners about their clients saying things like, we don't message our monthly donors because we don't want to remind them to turn their donation off. These are people who subscribed to your mission, who subscribe to feeling good, and they are much, much more valuable than a one-time giver. So your job now, marketing and being one effort, is to deliver on that feeling good on a regular basis. And that is what opens up the opportunity to ladder those givers up mm. to other behaviors. So again, how else are they getting involved? They want to be involved in your mission in more ways. One of the great things about that recurring environment is it, it frees you up as a mm. fundraising or a marketing professional to now think about all the other ways that you can deliver on and get those people involved in your mission and feel like they're a partner with you because the donation part is taken care of. What is that going to do? It's going to unlock more from that donor. The more they do, the more you can get from them, including more money. Okay. I love that. And I hear that a lot too, that piece around, we don't want to remind them that they're giving monthly, or it goes back to what you were saying before around that zero sum game. I hear folks don't want to do a monthly giving because then what if that's less than what they were going to give at end of year? And I think a place you and I are super aligned on is that the fact that the market for giving is indefinite. And it's about how much generosity we can inspire. And so it's not about here's the pie for the taking. And we often look at foundation funding is 20% of philanthropic giving. And even that is more flexible as we've mm -hmm. seen in the last few years than we once thought. But even if we assumed that piece was inflexible, 80% is totally flexible and has the ability to increase. And I'm curious what you think about the ecosystem around nonprofits themselves. I've been thinking a lot lately around how a lot of the companies in our sector as well demonstrate a lot of similar behaviors to the nonprofit in, a, in terms of a focus on acquisition, as opposed to a focus on really, truly helping nonprofits raise more money year over year. And it's interesting to me because when I think about the potential for the entire ecosystem to grow by bolstering generosity, if we were just moving a few more billion or trillion dollars into nonprofits as an entire ecosystem, everybody wins. And so how do we start to change that even larger conversation so that everyone recognizes the ability to move the bigger needle than just their company, just their organization, and this sort of potential for the sector. 
So I think that it does require a fairly dramatic shift in view from scarcity to abundance. Our report is that we just released is exactly about that. Giving is abundant. We need to drop the idea that it's not. What does that change once you drop that idea? For one thing, it means that you're less in competition and more in cooperation with every other organization. There's a lot of room to move giving upward. And there's some nuance there. On a sector level, that means, yeah, there's some acquisition opportunity. We saw that in 2020, more donors into the system, and that reversed a multi-year trend. And it's important that we do that. And so organizations need to acquire new donors in order for that to happen. That said, a lot of people are giving. So frequency is another key opportunity. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that we're going to get that frequency sector-wide across multiple organizations. So what we really want is, yeah, sure, you want someone to give to you more often. You should lock them in as a recurring donor and then find lots of other ways for them to give. But it's actually beneficial to all of us if we increase the number of organizations people are donating to. We're all going to do better. And raising that frequency collectively means more action more often. And then, yeah, part of that is acquiring a donor to your organization. What we saw in 2020 was a lot of shift in donors, but one of the things that that made clear is that the sort of fundamental models that we saw prior to 2020 are pretty much out the window. And that's very risky, right? It means that our systems are even less aligned with success than ever before. But I actually worry more about a return toward, quote, normality. There's indications in 2021 that we're getting back to a pre-2020 reality. And that means fewer donors in the system. So what we should learn from this is creating giving moments is what drives participation. For an organization, that means acquisition. For the system, that means frequency. And if we think about ourselves as to in this together, creating giving moments, that's what's going to drive the entire sector up. And I think the opportunities are enormous. We should be thinking in terms of 10, 15% increases in individual giving in the US. And the way we're going to get that is by believing that it's there. Okay. I love that. And I want to ask you a different question before we wrap up, which is what do you think about the more societal shifts that could help with some of this. So I have been for the last few years documenting when I see it, the way that fundraising is portrayed in pop culture, when we see it show up in a show. And it's always very much through a lot of the scarcity language or a lot of the sort of avoidance you were talking about trust before. And I was thinking about why is it that we still believe so deeply that donors don't trust us? Because what you're saying is that's not actually reflective of how donors feel, but yet we so deeply believe that. Some of that is, you know, limiting beliefs just carry on until they're broken. Some of it though, is that some of those beliefs get reinforced around us all the time, whether it's the way that the fundraising is portrayed on a show, or it's the way we feel personally when we pass a canvasser on the street and we walk to the other side of the street and we pretend we're on a phone call. Those moments, I think, reinforce for us that fundraising is uncomfortable or inappropriate or hounding or they don't trust us. And we get those political fundraising emails and we get 45 of them a day. So how, what is that more global responsibility? Or if we were going to ask media to be mindful of something when they're portraying nonprofits and fundraising, what would you say to some of those things? 
Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's let's start with trust. So first of all, I think that when we look at trusted nonprofits, there's indications that it has slipped, particularly recently. And that is true. The problem is that fact is being taken out of context. And so when we look at the context, what we find is that trusted nonprofits is comparatively resilient compared to other sectors. Secondly, it's also fairly high compared to other elements of our society. And it tends to be more elastic. Like when we ask people in the abstract about their giving and their trust, that's one thing. But when they're presented with an opportunity to make change, that ultimately matters more and in fact supports trust. And so it's okay to measure trust for sure. But if we don't think about that context and the fact that the trust is still quite strong and resilient, then it leads us to an approach to donors that doesn't actually trigger the behaviors we want. Another example of this is in the early days of the pandemic and individuals were asked, do you expect your donations to go up, down, or stay the same? And people were highly pessimistic about their giving in the early days of the pandemic. They were worried about the potential economic issues that were coming. And that makes sense. We were asking them in the abstract to predict their behavior. But when it came down to them having an opportunity to make change, they were highly responsive. In fact, the more concerned they were about things in their community, the more likely they were to take action to give. Because in the moment when being presented with that opportunity, that gives them agency over the concerns they have in their community. And the more acutely they're feeling those concerns, the more likely they are to want to take that action. So removed from the moment and the emotional need and the recognition of a mission, yeah, they were fairly pessimistic. But what was the reality of their giving? They were highly motivated to give, where we saw, despite less fundraising, more donors and more dollars. So we have to be really careful how we think about these results and that they don't always indicate the most important lever to pull. The other factor about this is separating nonprofit giving of dollars from all the other ways people give and thinking about those things as competitive and cannibalistic is likewise locking us out of some opportunity and frankly is highly inequitable. Mm. So there's two things to think about here. One is those people who are doing things that giving behaviors that aren't dollars to 501c3s, those people are more likely to give to charities than their peers. Those are generous people give. The best predictor of someone's giving is that they give. And so we shouldn't be thinking about those mechanisms as competitive. We should be thinking about how those behaviors deliver for that giver. And what does that tell us about how we should engage that giver? And the more giving they're doing, the better. Those are the mm -hmm. customers. Tactically, also, this means things like stop filtering out your best givers from your email campaigns. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> the other way to look at this is if you are highly focused on major donor giving and laddering up those major donors, that means you're basically calling white dudes. And we are just, there's Lily Family School of Philanthropy has done some research. It's very clear that a lot of the people who are left out of this and aren't showing up aren't being invited. And so this means that those we are robbing those people of agency by doing that. Mm. Those people who are often more connected with the communities we want to help are not being included in the conversation. And as a result, they have less voice. They have less voice over how organizations spend their resources, what interventions they deliver, what policies mm. are made. And this means we're not engaging 
what the nonprofit sector calls recipient communities. If you think look at those communities, there is a lot less dichotomy between giver and receiver. Mm. The idea of an ecosystem of support is much more how people live their generosity as opposed to some independent action that is taken as mm. part of some sort of benevolent view. And this is most giving. Hmm. most givers and most donations. And so we need to drop that and start looking at this at a systems level if we're going to embrace everybody and ultimately have more resilient organizations. I love it. And what I think I heard you say in that first piece around how donors reflect on their giving versus how they actually behave in the moment maybe goes to my sort of thinking around that perhaps the media portrayal of nonprofits is not quite as harmful as I've been concerned about because when it comes down to the moment of engagement and inspiration to get involved, that's a separate brain. Yeah, I don't think it's helpful. It's not helpful. <laughs> and I think that I think that we are often complicit right? Because we get into a conversation about that and the counterexamples and all that does. We look at the concerns about trust and we are adding voice to this idea that giving is complex. Mm. Make sure you give to a good organization. You have to think Mm. about all of these things like that might direct more dollars toward more, quote, trustworthy organizations, a whole fraught issue mm. in and of itself. But it could very easily just overall have a suppressing effect, including for those organizations. And the mm. fact is, most organizations are not wasteful. Most organizations are doing good work. And so we should not be feeding that fire. And then, yeah, I don't think it's helpful, but I think for the most part, what we see is that those has those sort of cynical views of the sector are more often than not an excuse somebody who's already not giving has for not mm. giving, as opposed to a very substantial suppression of behavior. Interesting. Okay, I could talk to you forever, but I know we're at time. So thank you so much for this incredible conversation today. Where can folks find you or where should they go to learn more if they aren't already involved in Giving Tuesday, which I can't imagine that you aren't if you listen to this podcast, but just in case, where should everybody go to get more involved and learn from some of these top resources? So givingtuesday.org is your source for all the things, how to get involved, how to get into our research, how to see our latest report, how to learn about the data commons and what we're doing, how to become a researcher as part of that commons, how to get resources for your organization to activate on Giving Tuesday and every other day of the year. Our website has all that. Awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. Okay, this might have been one of the most action-packed episodes ever, and there are so many takeaways, but here's what I want to double-click on right now. Number one, fundraising isn't a zero-sum game. Data indicates that just because someone gives to one organization one day doesn't mean they won't donate to yours tomorrow. Number two, younger people, most of whom have a high trust quotient towards charities, tend not to be proactive with giving. So outreach is more important than ever. And in that vein, number three, donor fatigue isn't actually a thing. But if your messaging is falling flat with your donor base, that actually could be the problem. Number four, Consider de-seasonalizing the time of year that your nonprofit pitches to donors. It turns out that the end of the calendar year isn't a be-all, end-all. We are actually creating many self-fulfilling prophecies in the way that we fundraise. Number five, 
When it comes to economic resiliency, the organizations that fare best are those with the broadest donor bases, even if individual donations are modest in size. And number six, Fundraising is much more than transactional. It's an ecosystem that includes storytelling and donor engagement. Invite everyone to participate, including recipient communities. Okay, there are so many more takeaways and tips inside this episode. So head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Woodrow and Giving Tuesday. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you tomorrow for the next episode in this incredible mini series. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.